Welcome to the Tanya Acker Show. Welcome to the podcast. The Civil Monetary Penalty Program is administered by the Social Security Administration, and its purpose is to penalize people who collect benefits that they're not entitled to. In 2017, uh, the government assessed about $700,000 for the whole year. For a seven-month period in 2019, that amount jumped to $11 million. Uh, Because of my next guest's reporting, an independent investigation has been opened into why uh, those penalties have increased so much, especially in relation to the amounts uh, that are alleged to have been overpaid. So for instance, uh, one person received about $10,000 in benefits to which she was not entitled. She was assessed a $132,000 fine. Received $10,000 she wasn't supposed to get. She was charged $132,000 by the government. My next guest has reported on this issue, and as a consequence of that, an independent investigation has been opened, and we're here to talk about both her reporting, the investigation, and what's gonna happen next. Here I am with Washington Post reporter, Lisa Ryan. Welcome to the podcast, Washington Post reporter, Lisa Ryan. Thank you for being here. Thanks so much for having me, Tanya. So, Lisa, I mentioned a little bit uh, in my opening to my viewers and listeners about the Civil Monetary Penalty Program, but can you just explain very briefly how it works? Sure. This is a pretty obscure program in the federal government, but a really important one. And this is essentially an anti-fraud program that is designed, sorry, run by the Inspector General's Office for the Social Security Administration. And it is designed to catch people who are fraudulently accepting disability benefits when they should not be. And these are cases that where the people have have been overpaid by the federal government, but not so significantly that the Justice Department would bring a criminal case. So that's why it's called a civil monetary penalty program. And the way it has worked for about 25 years is, you know, investigators working for the Inspector General's office get tips um, or a computer catches an overpayment to someone that is repeated. And uh, the investigators, you know, investigate. Sometimes they visit people's homes and they determine that, you know, people were basically on disability, but their circumstances changed and they took money that they shouldn't have. Maybe they earn too much money more than they were they were supposed to, even though, of course, the amount you're allowed to earn is pretty low. But, uh, or, you know, someone on benefits in their family died and they kept receiving the benefits. And so basically, the attorneys in the inspector general's office are supposed to, historically, um, work out a settlement agreement with, uh, with people. These are poor people, they're disabled people, they're elderly people. And yes, they committed fraud, but generally speaking, the fraud is what you know is sort of referred to as passive fraud. And generally speaking, a settlement would be reached where, over a period of years, the person would most likely continue receiving benefits, but the government would take out a couple of hundred dollars uh, every month to kind of repay itself. And sometimes the person would, depending on the infraction. Uh, have to pay a penalty of maybe 
several thousand dollars. But the idea behind this is that the person's financial condition must be taken into account. And that's historically. Things changed, and that's the story I wrote. Uh, but normally, these are poor people, and you know their ability to pay normally needs to be taken into account. So in your reporting, you actually pointed out that in 2017, for the whole year, the government assessed about $700,000 in fines. Now, let's juxtapose that to a seven-month period in 2019 when, according to your reporting, the government assessed about $11 million in fines. The gist of your story is that this didn't happen because there are so many more cheaters. It happened because the government stopped taking into account the financial condition of the people who were subject to these fines. Is that right? Sure. So just a quick history of this program. It never brought in huge amounts of money, but the idea is that the inspector general's office would report to Congress every year how much money they had recovered. A lot of it was really on paper because sometimes it took, you know, would take 20 years for the government to recoup what it had overpaid, you know, these folks. But at its peak, the government probably recovered about $21 million a year. But the program kind of fell by the wayside. It didn't, it stopped being a priority for the inspector general's office for a variety of reasons. It lost staff. The staff wasn't replaced. And then during the Trump administration, there were a bunch of attorneys in the program and uh, there was an acting inspector general followed by a Trump appointed inspector general who decided that they really wanted to get the program going again. Not a bad idea, probably a good thing. But what happened was that in doing this, they said, look, we want to just kind of raise the fines on paper so that we can tell Congress that we're bringing in more money. And so the strategy they used to do this is really the subject of our story. And it was, it was really a very controversial strategy. They just said, you know what, no matter what these people were overpaid, no matter what f- level of fraud they committed, we're going to just start charging them hundreds of thousands of dollars in penalties so that we can tell Congress, oh, guess what? This program has been reinvigorated. And that's really the crux of the, of the controversy. And in fact, in your story, you point out the relationship between some of these fines and then the amounts that were overpaid. So for instance, uh, one person received about $10,000 in benefits by mistake. And to be clear, these are benefits uh, to which that recipient was not entitled. That's right. As a result of that $10,000 overpayment, this person was assessed a fine of $132,000. Another example you point out, someone received $14,960 wrongfully. Again, that is money to which they were not entitled. They were assessed $168,000. So really, Lisa, uh, part of your reporting is about the fact that these fines were so disproportionate to the amounts that were overpaid. There was really no relationship between the two other than to really slap people on the wrist really, really hard, it seems. That's right. And in a lot of cases, people, I mean, people lost their disability benefits, you know, for the rest of their lives um, because they had to try, you know, 
to, to pay back these fines that they could never pay, but they were penalized by the inspector general's office, you know, which, as I said, run, runs the program. And I mean, it's just, you know, it, it really, it's a very nuanced story in the sense that about what happened here, because yes, there is fraud in this program, but you know, the question is, how much should a poor person who has committed fraud that does not rise to a criminal level, uh, you know, how much should that person really be penalized? And, you know, just wanted to add is that the inspector general's office, I mean, they broke, they broke the statute. They did not follow the statute and they did not take into account people's financial condition because had they done that, they would never have issued penalties like this. And uh, there were really was no attempt during this period to settle the cases. My next question for you is going to be, why should a lot of folks care about this? You know, you're talking about Americans who are paying $7 a gallon for gas. Uh, Folks are having a hard time finding baby formula and food. I mean, Americans are struggling. Everybody is struggling. A lot of people are struggling. So when they hear that somebody cheated the government and got a really hard slap on the wrist, a lot of folks may be inclined to say, so what? But to your point uh, that I don't want to be lost here, the issue is that the government did not follow its own rules because there are rules for how these penalties are supposed to be assessed. And the government said, you know what, we're not going to do that. Is that what happened here? I think so. And I think it was also a really interesting example of cynicism by a bunch of civil servants and political appointees, both, who kind of colluded to keep this this abuse of the system going in the sense that, you know, government, as it should, has so many rules. And the people running this program thought, you know, that Congress actually cared, you know, a report that was supposed to say how much money this program was bringing how much revenue this program was bringing in. And it was just cynical because, you know, the attorney in question and then the current inspector general of the Social Security Administration, who might add, you know, is now under, you know, three separate investigations following our reporting, which I I feel, um, you know, it was a good thing that, that the reporting had this effect. But it's just you can't just decide to be very cynical just so that you can sort of look good, to look good like you're complying with the rules. And in the end, Congress really didn't, wasn't really focused on this program and the fact that it had, it had dwindled and it was sort of less, had become less of a priority. Um, And, you know, there was sort of a perception that just kind of rolled into this crazy reality. And, and I guess the other thing I'd say in terms of why people should care, it is definitely true that, you know, when government administers a safety net program, they really are striving to get to for a balance between giving people who deserve the benefits that they've applied for, you know, giving them what they deserve, but also in trying to to weed out fraud. And in the case of, of disability, social security disability, fraud is definitely a part of this program because you know the process by which people there's the oversight is done by self-reporting. So you know someone inherits a house and it's up to them to report to the government that they've inherited a house and their benefits should should go down significantly or they should lose benefits. And so that's one thing. But I guess I, the way I think of it is, you know, there are a lot of wealthy, wealthy people who right now are not getting audited by the Internal Revenue Service. 
because the IRS is really crippled by 10 years of, of budget cuts, you know, by, by Republicans in Congress who didn't really want to fund the agency. And so it's really kind of a, if you look at it on a sort of, I don't know, broader level, it's a sort of a relative question that you're asking, you know, should, should poor people um, have to really, really be hit with penalties that let's say rich people who've defrauded the tax system are not being hit with? It's just a question to throw out there. The food for thought that you're offering is we're only focusing on poor cheaters. We're not focusing on cheaters across the board. Uh, is that kind of uh, where you were going with that? I think that in my mind, you know, when I, when I was reporting this story and, you know, interviewing people, you know, advocates for the disabled, lawmakers, I think that it, that was in the back of my mind. But it's, it is a nuanced story because there's no question that these people committed fraud. And after the story ran, I got, you know, emails from taxpayers who said, look, they committed fraud. You know, they should pay for that. And they absolutely shouldn't. That is why this program exists. But one fascinating element is the part of the reason this program exists is that the Justice Department you know, rarely prosecutes uh, Social Security fraud cases unless you have what is called facilitator fraud, you know, which is where you have someone taking advantage. But in this case, uh, this, was, this was not that kind of fraud. We certainly know that the Social Security system is subject to fraud. I, I don't know if you saw, you probably did, uh, the docu-series on Apple TV Plus, uh, the big yes. con, uh, t- tells a story of the largest fraud in the history of Social Security. I recently interviewed uh, the two women who brought that fraud bars. down, yeah. uh, Sarah Carver and Jennifer Griffith. And so part of the reason that your story interests me so much is that it really speaks, it seems to speak to a sort of arbitrariness um, in the way that uh, public officials are exercising their power that struck me as present in the case of Jennifer and Sarah. And part of what gets me about your story is that I'm kind of wondering what the heck is going on over there? You know, on the one hand, <laughs> we saw a half a billion dollar fraud take place and then the whistleblowers, you know, were really targeted. And then we see uh, a $14,000 fraud take place, and then that person is charged $132,000. There just seems to be some arbitrariness happening that I don't understand. Right. You're so right. And it's interesting to link this to the Eric Kahn case, and that was a great series. Um, and I mean, it's a couple of things you raised. One is it's very hard to be a whistleblower in the federal government. And, you know, in, in my story, um, the one, you know, that we're talking about, there were two whistleblowers, in fact, who brought these very, very high penalties to the attention of uh, the current inspector general um, of Trump appointee named Gail Ennis. And uh, they were they were retaliated against. And, um, you know, one of them was fired. Uh, she had to she settled her case. Uh, with a, um, an independent agency called the Merit Systems Protection Board, who she, she appealed her case to. She then settled, and she's back at work, but having a very hard time, as you described the, the whistleblowers in the Khan case. And the other whistleblower, 
um, an attorney in the Civil Monetary Penalty Program. She actually won her case with the Merit Systems Protection Board, and she is owed back pay. The judge, the administrative law judge in her case, uh, wrote a scathing, scathing report saying that the inspector general basically carried out a prima facie case of whistleblower reprisal um, in in punishing her. She was demoted and she was marched out of the office on admit and put on a paid administrative leave. Actually, both women were. So um, it's, yes, it's very hard to be a whistleblower. And also to make the distinction, the, the kind of fraud in the Eric Kahn case that was the subject of this great Apple TV series was what we call facilitator fraud, where some guy is trying to get rich off of poor disabled people who he's trying to get benefits for. And in this case, you know, I think the kind of fraud that by and large we're talking about is, you know, what we call passive fraud, where, I mean, it's not right. It's not right. It's it's still fraud. But I think, you know, having a guy who's trying to make millions of dollars off of the government, you know, um, to try to get poor people their benefits is very different, uh, you know, than someone who who's, who who doesn't report, you know, a higher income than they're allowed to have, who doesn't report that they, you know, bought a car. These are not people, by and large, who are living uh, luxurious lives on their disability benefits. No, in fact, I think you point out in your story that in one case, one of the recipients, I think, co-signed for a car uh, and then that, and didn't report that. And I think someone else inherited some property and didn't yeah. uh, and didn't report that. Um, a couple of these folks indicated that they weren't aware of the fact that they were supposed to, but then also said, mea culpa, um, you know, I'm willing to take my punishment, but then my punishment for this $14,000 overpayment is $100,000. And the only way that they can pay that back is by having all of their social security uh, garnished going forward. Something else you mentioned is that these fines don't take into account the age of the recipient. So in some cases, Mm -hmm. you have people who for, let's say, a $10,000 overpayment, they might be in their 70s. In order to satisfy the fine, they'll have their Social Security checks garnished for the rest of their lives. That's right. A woman outside of Chicago who is in the story, she's 74. And, you know, she was never on benefits, but her late partner was. And, you know, she, she flips burgers, you know, at a gas station. And because she did not report that he had died. And, you know, it's, it's always these folks often have very complicated stories. And it's very hard to really sift through what did they know, what didn't they know. Um, but, you know, she acknowledged, she said, I told the investigators, I'll pay back. If I screwed up, I will pay back what I owe. So, and I fully believe that she did tell the investigators that. But yeah, she has lost her social security uh, for at least, I think it's 12 more years or something like that. And, you know, that's pretty rough. That's a pretty rough thing to go through. So let's talk about what your story resulted in, because, you know, it really strikes me, Lisa, that there are two parts of this. Uh, For me, there are two parts of why I wanted you here. One is that uh, you're touching on this issue, which to me, again, uh, given my interview with Jennifer and Sarah, and I'm really compelled by them, by the way, uh, they helped bring this fraud down and they were not treated well at all. No, they weren't. Horrible. Um, 
Yeah. Maybe you could help them. Maybe they should be your next story. Because I feel like at the end of that movie, <laughs> at the end of that docuseries, we didn't have a good sense of how hard it's been for them. So one, you you, you touched on this, this arbitrariness in uh, the exercises of government power. But the other reason I wanted you here is because you did the work, you wrote a story, and because of your work as a journalist, uh, there is now an independent investigation into how this program was being administered. Uh, you made something happen. How does that feel? <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, it, it feels really good. I mean, um, yeah, I was, you know, we, my editors and I were not really sure how the story would be would be received. And I think, you know, Gail Ennis, the inspector general, is a Trump appointee and President Biden has every right, you know, to fire her at any time. But there's a fascinating backstory here because Trump fired about five inspector generals, um, inspectors general, um, and at, at very prominent agencies. And um, because he didn't like their policies and he didn't like the fact that they that they wrote uh, reports that were that were critical of him. And so I think President Biden uh, is very hesitant to fire um, Ms. Ennis because he doesn't want to be kind of accused by um, Republicans of, of, of doing, you know, kind of the same thing that, that President Trump did. So the council, there's a kind of a council of inspectors general who investigate misconduct by their peers. And so that is the group that is investigating Gail Ennis. There's another entity, the Office of Special Counsel, which handles whistleblower cases. They are also uh, investigating uh, the inspector general. And so uh, What's interesting is that this investigation was purposely made public, I think, because the Biden White House uh, wanted it to be so that they could be very clearly, uh, you know, telling, uh, you know, the public and our readers that they were um, really trying to hold this person accountable. But, you know, that's OK. Biden wants wants something that he can. In my my understanding is that president just wants he wants a document giving him kind of the authority to 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 make a decision about the IG uh, not well, just he, a news he has authority he want it sounds like he wants he cover he's he got wants cover yes he wants sorry cover. about that he has the cover yeah he has he has the authority and you pointed out that there are uh, two different investigations against uh, the IG one is with respect to the administration of the penalty program and another and is did you say there's another investigation that's right. pending right so the other yeah, about yeah, the whistleblowers. It's a, yeah, it's a small agency that deals with whistleblower reprisal. And uh, right, I don't know if the whistleblowers in the Eric Kahn case, uh, you know, went went to that agency or not. It's called the Office of Special Counsel. But basically, they're very very short staffed. But it's a wonderful nonpartisan agency, and they, you know, in a case, in a high profile case, uh, kind of like this one, um, they they basically figure out if someone has faced a reprisal and then they go to the agency in question and they say, you know, you need to, to do something about it. So we'll see what happens with that. What do you think should happen next? I mean, let's just break this down for people, Lisa. We know there's going to be a certain amount of fraud in any government program, just like there's a certain amount of fraud in, you know, private insurance. There's fraud everywhere. You give people an opportunity to take advantage of something, some people will. What is the best way, 
in your view, and based on the reporting and the facts and the research that you've collected, what's the best way to mitigate some of those excesses? Do we go back to the rules? Do we go back to, you know what, if you cheat, we're going to penalize you and we're going to take into account your age and all these other factors? Because we can't just let cheaters cheat, but we also uh, have to have some rules in play. We have to have a process. You know, that's what democracy is about, rules and process and uh, applying things uh, in a fair way going forward and with some consistency. So sure. what would you do? Uh, I'm really not here to, it, you know, to issue uh, opinions. But, but I mean, there's no question that I think everyone at the Social Security Administration you know, is aware that there is fraud in the disability benefits program. But what is fascinating to me, and I learned this in the course of my reporting, is that, you know, they don't document the extent of the fraud and no one has ever done that. And, you know, the agency, and I'm, I I sort of get the sense that it's really by design that they that they don't want to really try to sort of issue a report you know, about what they believe the extent of the fraud is. It, it's just a little bit of a, I don't know, of a third rail that you sort of can't talk about. And I think it, the disability program has a lot of challenges. You know, in the pandemic, it really suffered because the field offices where disabled people go, uh, you know, to try to get, get benefits, appeal denials of benefits. Those offices have been closed for now two and I mean, two years, they've barely reopened. Um, You know, I think that something will happen to this, you know, fraud program that we wrote about, and it will, um, I think it will, it will recover and it will go back to what, you know, what it once was. And I think it'll get, it'll get a robust staff that it absolutely, you know, deserves to have. Um, And, and I think, you know, there are also, but there's these, basically almost 100 cases that, you know, are in this kind of grouping that we wrote about where, uh, and that's the question in my mind is what happens to them because the penalties, I think it was 83 people got these really egregious penalties. And and so the question is, what will happen to those cases? Will they be renegotiated? Um, And that will be, I think, part of the investigation. I did want to say that the Social Security Administration, we forgot, is also doing its own investigation of the administration of this program. So we have three investigations. I sort of forgot about that. And so they, the acting Social Security Commissioner, will have to decide um, what to do, uh, you know, about the program itself and the the potential alleged abuses that, that we wrote about. Lisa, I, I really have to thank you for being here. And, and I think it's important uh, before we go that we really put your story in context because this is not just about social security fraud. Uh, it's not just about how much you charge people when they break the rules. For me, the issue is really how do we make sure that government plays by the rules. So that's why I think your story is so important. Um, That's what I think is kind of the larger issue going on here. How do we keep government accountable? Am I reading too much into it? Because I feel like you're going someplace that's much bigger than just, you know, what's happening over in the Social Security Administration. I I think there's something bigger going on. Sure. And you know what, Tanya, the thing is, What's so frustrating is that the federal government is this massive, massive entity with 2.1 million civil servants, 
uh, who who run, you know, do amazing things every day to operate the government from, you know, running the postal service to discovering, making new scientific discoveries to, um, you know, to making sure that the at the EPA that, you know, polluters don't um, pollute. Um, but the problem is it's such a vast entity that very few people understand that. And there's a lot of obscure stuff that goes on and there's a lot of misconduct, but that no one, no one ever knows about. And, you know, we have Congress as a check. Um, we have, uh, you know, career civil servants who are basically overseen by political appointees who come and go with each administration. Uh, we have inspectors general. We have auditors at the Government Accountability Office. And, you know, I think Congress is supposed to be the biggest check. Sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't. Sometimes it's better in divided when you have divided government because Congress acts as more of a check. I think the problem with this um, program is that it fell through the cracks because it was a small program. And, uh, but that doesn't mean it, it wasn't important. And as you say, it is very hard to keep government accountable. And, you know, I mean, we know that there's also, also a lot of waste in government, just spending of money in government that no one really looks at. And sometimes it's just, it's just that there's, it's such a vast, vast enterprise running the federal government, you know, that things are bound to go wrong. Well, this is why uh, we all really should be grateful uh, to journalists like you who are doing the work and digging in and figuring out what's actually going on, what's happening to our money, uh, who's spending what, and who's doing what. Because of the work you did uh, and the facts that you dug up and the research that you made important, there are three investigations taking place into how our government is working, and those investigations are happening because of your work. So I am very grateful to you. Uh, my listeners should be very grateful to you, regardless oh, of your feelings you on so this much. nuanced issue. Uh, what <laughs> you are doing is keeping eyes on the government. So thank you very much for that, and thank you very much for being here. Thank you so much for having me, Tanya. It was lovely to meet you. Really, really. Um, and, and if any of your listeners want to get in touch with me, it's lisa.rein, R-E-I-N, at washpost.com. Please call with tips, anything like that. Lisa's got her eyes open, and she is watching for all of us. Thank you, Lisa. <laughs> Thanks for being here. Thanks, Tanya.